now listening to the Film Situation Podcast. I'm so honored to have cinematographer Vincent DePaula on the Film Situation Podcast. Welcome, Vincent. Thank you, Sam. So happy to be here. Thank you for having me. I guess give us a little bit of an introduction about yourself and your background. Yeah, I'm a cinematographer and I was born in Spain in the northwest part of Spain, an area called Galicia, where there's not a lot of film background, to be honest. But I grew up there, memories in the 80s and the 90s, where I was watching mainly European movies, which is a huge reference for me. At a very young age, I knew that I wanted to be in the movies. After watching, I remember watching It's a Wonderful Life. I know that it's a cliche, but I remember very vividly, you know, I was six or seven. And I wake up in the morning after I watched a film. And that feeling that I had, it almost felt like religious. It's like a calling. I was just thinking of that movie, the images that I saw and the messages that I was given by Kappa. He saw that film. And I realized, gosh, I have to be involved in this thing. I have to somewhat get in the films. Of course, I wanted to be a director first. And, and it was mainly those messages and that feeling. And I wanted other people to like have the same feelings that I had. And again, I was six, seven, right? Normally, sometimes you don't know what you're thinking when you're at that age, but it was very clear in my head, oh gosh, I have to be involved in this thing. And it kind of made me want to watch more movies, even if they were dubbed to Spanish, which is not great. But still, I remember just thinking, I'm just going to watch any movie because I'm going to get something out of it, whether it's beautiful images, a message. It was always the message for me that there's always something interesting in any story, even if they weren't great, but there was something that I would learn from. But anyway, I guess what, what I was trying to say, that at a very young age, I got into it and I really wanted to get involved. And said, like I said earlier, not an area that is very well known for film or any even TV background where I was from. But they had a really cool school there. They had a pretty cool film and TV school that I attended for three years, knowing that I would probably have to move out after that. And then I did. And it was the question where I was 19 or 20. Do I want to move to Madrid? Or which is mainly where everything was happening at the time. And how far? Or how far? Just, how far geographically was Madrid from where you grew up? Yeah, so Galicia is in the northwest part of Spain, above Portugal. It's about a four-hour drive. Well, you drive fast, yeah. <laughs> jump on a train. Now, in in two hours, you're there. But four to five-hour drive. My dad had studied arts in 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 Madrid, and I think that's pretty much where. I think in my creativity comes from. My dad was a painter as well as his normal job. Oh, that's um, pretty cool. But it was clear to me that if I'm going to move out, I might as well just dream a little bit, knowing that America was always the goal. And uh, because of the language barrier, I moved to London first to England and I became a DP there. And that was pretty interesting because I started working on documentaries and stuff like that where I learned to use natural lighting. So I, had, I didn't have a choice, right? You're there with a camera, you're operating yourself and natural lights with this, this beautiful window here, trying to put everybody next to the window. It's me, a producer, a director, and a sound recorder, and that's it. And you kind of have to make it work. And that was pretty cool early on in my career. He taught me a lot about using natural lighting and that embedded in my head this naturalistic approach that I still have. And then slowly in England, I started getting more into narrative and trying to have that still naturalistic approach and trying to change it and control it a little bit to make it more dramatic. You know, you're working hard and there was a point, there were so many music videos, so many commercials that I was doing there, so many independent films. And one day you get a call from somebody to do like a second unit, a second unit job. And they like what you do. And I think I was like 24, 25, I was pretty young and working for 
places like BBC or ITV, Channel 4, where everybody's much older than you, everybody's English, nobody has an accent. I felt a little, oh, they're looking at me like, who's this young kid and you're in the business here with this accent? And it felt like that, but no, not in a bad way. It was kind of like cool. But it, it was pretty awesome to be able to work on those shows and start learning the craft in a bigger environment, the proper film studios and stuff like that. And then after that, I did a few films there, carried on doing some commercials and music is always very important to me. I did some music videos as well. And then I jumped to, I moved to LA. My dad got sick. I came back to Europe. Then I went back to, uh, to North America where I am right now. And uh, the rest is kind of history. Once, once you're getting an opportunity to, you know, to show your work and people to appreciate what you do, then hopefully and luckily you get more calls to carry on doing your work. And that's what happened to me. It took a while. Sometimes it takes a while, but maybe that's a good thing. I think that as filmmakers, we develop a voice when we do traveling, we explore different cultures, different people. Um, we develop more of a voice, I think. I remember I moved to England. I was really young and I was pretty naive at the time, but you, you kind of have to learn to survive pretty much. In a place like London, with so many cultures there, so many people that I met from Italy, from Australia, from the States, from anywhere in Europe. It's such an amazing influence, not just, not just in film, because I think that this is an art form that wants to be influenced by everything, by literature, by poetry, photography mainly, music, right? Everything kind of wants to live together Absolutely. and develop an influence to us. Yeah, I, and I'm happy you say that because that's one thing that drew me to becoming a filmmaker is that it encompasses everything. It really encompasses mm. everything. Like every person that you meet, every place that you see, like, all could tie into sort of what you're doing. You know? Absolutely. I think it's very important. Just sometimes I'm going to meetings or interviews for jobs. And sometimes I don't want to come with a visual approach already to any project. I want to hear them first. But I talk a lot about music. I talk a lot about literature. I talk a lot about painting or photography, even more than any other films or TV. Because I think it's very important. To, to put all those things together. It's, it's interesting because I've actually had a well-known cinematographer Juan Ruiz Anchia on the podcast uh -huh. before. I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but he did. Yeah, Glenn, absolutely. Glenn Gary Glenn Ross and really acclaimed cinematographer. And he was, what you were talking about, the naturalistic lighting and that sort of thing. And I know he had a background in documentaries and he was talking about exactly the same thing about how he first got into it. Obviously, he's a lot older and is a different thing, but it seems like you st first started working in film yourself. And actually, I had read in an article, I read an article you wrote, an American cinematographer years back, where I read the article recently in preparation for this podcast. But although it's, it's very pop possible that I had read it at the time it came out, because your name looked familiar, and I'm like, you know what? I may have read this, because I definitely subscribed to that magazine. And... So you were talking about that you did a film, I guess, in England. It was a low-budget film that I guess it was mm -hmm. around a $1 million budget. And it was a thriller called Don't Let Him In. And right. at the time, they were thinking about shooting digitally. But based off the vibe that they were going for, you had convinced the director and the producer to go with Super 16. Is that And that was written in 2012. Do you think you would have the same conversation today or do you think the technology is advanced where digitally the technology could... has definitely advanced like exponentially yeah exponentially and yeah, i know that for a fact I, I i'm just curious if you would still have the same sort of thing like you would still push for film or do you think digital could achieve that filmic look if yeah, somebody wanted know, to go I, make the technology a film has advanced yeah 
I'm sorry to interrupt. I think there was a little audio delay. Oh yeah, all good. I was just gonna say because I know specifically, like the director. I was reading that the director was influenced by films of the '70s, like Straw Dogs and that sort of thing. Is that would you still push for film if it was that same conversation today, or do you think it would? I think I would. Technology has advanced a lot since then. That was yeah, that was ten years ago. I wrote the article, and in your right, the reference was Straw Dogs, a very grainy naturalistic, almost claustrophobic, like, style. At that point, I think the discussion at that point was shooting digitally, for sure, like, on the red camera. Not that I don't like those cameras at all. They have advanced a lot. But it was that that look and that style that it just called for film. It just called for grain. So what I did, my friends, I called back in the labs, and I made sure that I got great discounts. I, do a, I did a little test. And it was pretty clear once that was seen that it has to be filmed by trying to achieve something right. that we will have to get a look later after the fact where I can just shoot it the way we want. I can move also way faster. I talked about that in the article as well. I remember I move so much faster when shooting on film because everybody knows that we are burning film, right? We kind of have to be ready for the take. The discipline on set is so much different. There is not so much need for... HD monitors for every department because you're going to be looking at a very blurry black and white image. And, you know, that's where the trust to the cinematographer comes from. Yeah, no, I'm glad, that, I'm glad that you bring this up because I still, I will still push for it because I film is not dead. And as we know, it's being used many, it's still very often right now. I think that there has to be a very strong artistic decision to go to film these days to convince somebody to go that route. I remember when I moved to North America full time, I was still always fighting for film. And then I realized that I'm not doing myself any favor because people are really want to go the opposite way. So I stopped the fight, but if there is a script that calls for it, I'm always going to bring it to the table for sure. It's another, it's another pencil that we have to write our book. It's not dead, it's very much alive, and just a different tool. Not the last feature, a feature before, the last one that I did, that I shot on the Alexa with anamorphic lenses, it was great. But there was a call for that as well. It's a feature called Two Hearts, it's universal and freestyle, and we managed to get a, you know, an amazing theatrical release over a thousand screens all over North America, sadly in That's pandemic amazing. times. That is amazing. So, yeah. Yeah, oh. It's amazing, but that thing is that not many people went to see it. Gotcha. Because it was... Yeah, COVID. it and was then, like you know, early luckily on. Netflix yeah. picked it up and it became quite popular. But what I was trying to say is that there was a call for film there too, because with the story of two timelines, one that lives in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, parallel to the story that is just in the 2000s, and then how they made those stories towards the end of the film. And I really wanted to push for film for the period of staff and the producers and the directors, they have always shot on film. So I thought, okay, this is a winner. I'm definitely going to be able to do this. Sadly, at that time, we were shooting in Vancouver and we also shot in Hawaii a lot. There were no labs close to us. There was a lab in Vancouver and a lab in Seattle. They closed. There's nothing in Hawaii. And that meant that we had to ship everything to Los Angeles and back to us. The producers were a little worried about that. And that was really the main decision to not go to film. But I still, this is not too long ago. This is four or five years ago. I still would bring that to the table for sure. And there's still a lot of people that, that love shooting on film. Yeah. And to me, I was lucky enough that I did so much on film earlier on in my career that it, to me is the best school to learn how to expose, to learn how to put the image in, on film. You can learn to expose with your eyes, right? And then transitioning to digital is so much easier that way. 
if we had to go the other route, if we had to go from digital to film, I think a lot of people would struggle. If you just know digital, this canvas to put your images, it's a little different how, how you would approach a film. That makes perfect sense. Because I guess the approach also is what, like what is what you're going to get in the frame versus there's a mentality nowadays where there might be a lot of younger DPs that are like, well, it's going to change so much once we do the grade and once we do this. That's the thing. That's scary, though. Before I moved here full time, I did a feature in the Scandinavian countries, in Norway, Denmark, and in Sweden. And I could not supervise the color correcting of that film. Yeah, that and, must know, be. That, that, I could, that I didn't could go see. the way that I wanted. I could see that being frustrating <laughs> for a DP for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's very frustrating, and it's a battle that we're still fighting these days. I'm always making sure that in any project that I do in my contract, I want to make sure that I need to supervise that color timing. We don't get paid for it. We don't get paid extra money for it. It's, that's not the point. The point is I need to control what's happening because these days shooting raw, shooting log. We can change anything. Even right now, I'm doing a TV show. It's, um, it's, a, it's a DC comics, it's a superhero genre, which is great because I'm exploring that genre on the show and it's fantastic. But even on the day, even though I love to have a very old-fashioned approach where shooting digitally, I have the one lad that I want, I want to think of as a film stock and then a light for that lad. But I can make subtle decisions on the day with the DIT, some CDL changes. I can make red become green. I can do so much. Even just that for dailies. If I'm not supervising what's happening later, the whole thing can change. And you can make night become day. It's incredible. The power that we have right now after the fact is incredible. It's, yeah. um, we have to be able to use it properly because in the wrong hands, it can go the total, the total wrong way. That makes perfect sense. And it's definitely interesting to hear that perspective. And I know Alex Gray, the cinematographer that I work with on my projects, he is really adamant about... He also is a yeah. colorist as well, so he does... Do his own color but he's really adamant about is about that on the color grading so actually uh, speaking of two hearts i d- did think it was interesting because i only had watched the trailer for that and i had watched that after watching a bunch of episodes on the series that you've done firefly lane which i thought yeah. was structurally interesting because that's also hmm. weaving back and forth in timelines and so let's discuss firefly lane for a bit. That's a series that's on Netflix. Seems to be a really popular series with Katherine Heigl and Sarah Chalk about two friends that it spans from when they were younger to the, from the 1970s and then to when they're in their 20s and the 1980s to and then it cuts to the early 2000s. And I think what's really cool about the show is it weaves in these time periods in a really seamless and interesting sort of way where obviously we've seen a bunch of different things where it goes back and forth in time but i think this series does it in a really way it's a way that's really easy to follow and organic to the telling of the story that i think is really cool so i guess let's talk about that a little bit how did that project come about for you how did you first get involved yeah, th- thanks. Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, and you bring that up because Two Hearts led me to that project. It was interesting. The same producer who produced Two Hearts sent me the script for Firefly, and he thought that was I was a good fit for it. And I think I guess he was right. Oh, okay, that makes uh, sense. You know, so yeah. I made yeah, like you said earlier, I love shooting period stuff, and what an opportunity for a cinematographer to be able to show those different timelines. And like you say, you have to go back and forth with them. 
and finding interesting ways to transition with we use a lot of transitions on the show that normally we like to create on the day in front of the camera. There has been some times that you create them in the edit. But after reading the part of the script that totally blew me away, I met with the showrunner and producers. We, we just gelled from day one. I had a visual approach to them. I mentioned a lot of references from photography, pictures, music, and other movies that I wanted them to see. And it was love at first sight. It was, it was almost like the decision was made on the day that I was going to be the cinematographer on this show. And then I was so excited about that, being able to to show those the 70s, the 80s, and the early 2000s, which are the main core timelines that we use, and having America as a canvas, American history, culture. It was very important that to me and to everybody to show how women rights and equality have changed as well from the 70s to now. It's pretty clear it's a show made for women mainly, right? But, but we can all relate to it, of course. I connected to the story so much, the story in the 70s, when you are growing up and dreaming with your best friend, right? You're a teenager, life, life is ahead of you and you can dream about everything. And I remember me growing up in Spain with my best friend, it was pretty much the same thing. So the way I approached the look of the show was mainly from your own experiences. You have an idea of what the 70s can look like. I'm, I grew up in the 80s. I don't remember the 70s based on references on other films. You can have an idea of what that could look like. But I wanted to approach that from an emotional perspective. As I'm the teenager in the 70s, growing up with my best friend. So I wanted to have that very warm look, very, everything is great. There's always a beautiful hot light coming through the windows at all times. I had stockings in the lenses. I love using stockings, which I also use on two hearts. And I had an 81 AEA filter that warms the image overall, that gives you that very silky, smooth, creamy look of the 70s, because everything is great. You are 16 and you are dreaming of, you know, about life. And then, and then we hit the 80s. And I'm thinking of the 80s, I'm thinking of Madonna, color, saturation, crazy hair tools, right? Yeah. So the image has a little more saturated palette. I wanted the camera to be more dynamic as well, because these girls are now in the 20s, the first jobs, the first love affairs. They're very dynamic. So when we explore the Steadicam much more in the 80s, I had a different filtration. I had Classic Softs was my main filtration in the 80s, pretty heavy, the Classic Softs. And I'll tell you later the difference between season one, because I made several differences too, mainly in the 80s, because I don't know if many people know this, but Catherine Heigl and Salah Chalk, they played themselves in the 80s as well. I do know that. um, And I wanted to ask you about that because they really do look younger and the, so is it straight up like VFX de-aging? I'm imagining that it's also your lens choices and maybe giving it a softer look in general. But I do think it, it really it looks authentic. Like it looks pretty good. Thanks. Yeah, it, yeah that, that, that was the idea to use VFX de-aging for the 80s. So that kind of like changes the way your life faces a little bit. I have to be a little flatter the way I lit a face to help the aging as well. And classic softs, really beautiful to that. You know, the way it smoothens a face as well. There were, there were places where if the lens was wide enough, maybe there was no need for any de aging at all, which saved a lot of money. It's a very expensive process, a very lengthy and costly process. Yeah. But that, when you have a close-up, this de aging involved for sure. So that was the approach for the aging, knowing that there was a post-process involved after the fact. But it was mainly classic softs. The way I lit the faces a little flatter, which is not ideal. There's not much negative feel 
at all in the 80s. And the color palette is a little more saturated as well. I wanted to play with colors in the background as well. Purples and reds and greens and yellow. And then we hit the 2000s, which is when this, these women, life didn't turn out the way they were dreaming in the 70s, maybe. You know, it's reality. There's lots of struggles. That's true uh, because the, Tully the, is very successful, but she has a sort of talk show that's covering topics that aren't the kind of serious journalism that she thought she might have been pursuing when she was younger. And mm. Kate's character, Kate, right? Yeah. Her character, she was married and going through a divorce and has a teenage daughter. And now she's re-entering the workforce, but her career didn't quite end up panning out the way she originally anticipated. And such is life, right? That's We all have ideas about our lives and rarely does it go exactly as planned, right? There's twists in the road. There's things that you have to adapt to. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, that was also my thinking as well. We want to see this 2000s and we want to relate to this as well. Basically what you just said as well. The palette wants to be a little more neutral. The framing is a little bit more short-sighted, not so centered. The camera is a little more still as well. We want to observe this, I would say, struggling. It's just connecting the audience to that. And that's one of the things that I loved about this project as well. Being able to, because I relate so much to this story too. The dreaming part of it in the 70s, then in the 80s, to me it was more like the 2000s, but you know how much energy you put to make those dreams come true. And it seems like it's going that way. And then we jump to reality and wait, hang on a minute. There's family involved, there's struggle, there's death in the family, there's a career didn't pan out the way you want it because maybe you had to stop dreaming to be able to have a family. It's, it's, just, it's just wonderful to be able to explore all of that with, with lighting, with filtration, with camera movement, with lenses. It, just, it was such a great opportunity that to me was a dream project. It really awesome as a cinematographer to be able to, to have that. Oh, yeah. And also it was a fun, fun show as well. It was just crazy. It was just wonderful, really. How big was, was the crew on that project? You usually stand crew as well. We mainly run two cameras at all times. Every now and then we will bring a third camera. And it, know, was a shot, shot. it was shot on a Pana, Panavision DXL, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, season one we shot in season two as well. Panavision DXL2 that we know has the, the red sensor inside. And Iron does his own colorimetry. And I really like what they did actually with the highlights. And I call it the silkiness of it. It's a little more silkier to me, the image. But of course, this is all subjective. And on season one, I had Cook S4. So I'm, I like to call myself, I don't know if I should be saying this, but I like to call myself a Panavision cinematographer. I've been with Panavision all my career. And they have my back and all that stuff. The project that I'm doing right now is not Panavision. And doesn't mean that I'm always going to be with Panavision, but they always have my back. And I'm saying this because I got used to Panavision glass so much. And I've always loved Panavision glass. The Panavision Primos is my favorite spherical glass. It's just so wonderful. And I wanted to use the Primos for season one, but they weren't available. It's still very popular. So I went with the Cooks, which I love as well. And I did several tests in the, on season one, and I wanted to use different lenses for different periods. For budgetary reasons, I couldn't go that way. And I chose the Cook S4s because I thought that was the perfect glass for me to alter for different periods as well. I love I love the Cooks too. The Cook look. On season two, it's though, once, once, once I decided to come back to do season two, which we shot on two parts, I had explored the Panas Pit on a show that I was involved as well prior to season two called Made. And the Panavision Panas Pit is like a full frame 
version of the Primos. Very fast lens, beautiful glass. It's just so gorgeous. I fell in love with it immediately. And I knew that if I was going to come back to do season two of Firefly Lane and I wanted to go back to the DXL2, I'm going to get those final speeds. They're not cheap. They're awesome. They were hard also to get, but I booked them early on. I didn't have to do any testing at all. I just knew that was the glass that I wanted to carry on filming with. Nice. Because it's beautiful. It has an amazing resolution, amazing contrast. And I can alter even more, even farther with the stockings and filtration to achieve the different looks. I changed. That's the only thing that I changed uh, gear-wise on season two. A lot of the camera crew came back, but I uh, shot an average, I think it was eight days per episode. Sometimes we had maybe like an extra day. There was some second unit days, but mainly eight days per episode, 12 hour days. We never shot more than 12 hours, which is great. In fact, in my career, I don't think I've ever shot more than 14 hours, which is pretty incredible. I think I've been pretty lucky. Wow. Or I've just been choosing the shows that I know that they're not going to do for too long. It gets to a point where we shot for 10 months between my month of prepping before the starting season two we saw 16 episodes i'm the only dp on the show and you're always filming you know if you work like 16 hour days i just don't know how people can actually be creative or have the energy or even the will to do anything no it's a good point and it's not sustainable for a number of reasons including people's performances like how could that be good for an actor to work like a 20 hour day unfortunately Vincent, there's a growing trend in really low budget things where people are trying to shoot movies in 10 days or less. And I think that's insane. I don't think that's a, I don't think that's good. I don't think it yields to good results. I, and I know obviously people are doing it to try to cover costs, but I've heard many stories of just people are like we work from 7 a.m. till two in the morning, like every day. It's like, how could that be good? How could that be a good thing? Yeah, nobody, no, nobody can win from that. At all. And the sad, the sad part of that, people who come out of film school, that might be the only way for them to start getting experience on sets. Yeah. And I think that's the wrong, that's the wrong thing to do, though, because you might be learning the wrong things to do. You might be yeah. learning the wrong habits on, on a film set. Having to move so fast, not being able to lie properly. This flat, I see a lot of movies at the week where they do that a lot, right? They shoot movies in 12 days, 15 days, or even less. And uh, you have to shoot 16 hours or even more. I don't even know. How can you move so fast? How can you have time to do things proper? And like you said, not just for us, the creative people behind the camera. It's also for the talent and the actors. And yeah, yeah, the yeah, obviously people are brutalizing their crew. If that's a given. It's And it's horrible to do that. And I'm against that sort of thing. It's, I believe to treat the crew with respect always. But Absolutely. yeah, just from a creative standpoint, how could that lead to the best results? I, I don't know. I would always fight for more days if there's one thing that I would fight for if I was making a project because that's, Absolutely. I did, yeah, I did it, a small it, it, budget feature film and me and, and really credit to our producer, George Rudai. George was really big on let's do eight to 10 hour days. If we, and then if we have a couple of days that are longer, people will be understanding about it because we're not brutalizing them every day. It might be just one or two days on the climax scenes, some key important scenes. And I really stuck to that. And I'm so glad that we did because it was definitely better. Absolutely. Absolutely. 100% agree. There might be the occasional day or two days on a show that you might have to extend your hours. Or maybe you bring an additional crew for whatever reason. The show that I'm doing right now is very heavy on stunts and VFX. And sometimes we have four cameras on the day. I'm a one camera guy and I love to operate that camera as well. That's what I was always doing in Europe. Yeah. But I can't do that. When I came there on a feature film, 
but I cannot really do that on a show that you see so many cameras and I have to supervise all of them. And luckily there's amazing operators there. You can just give that to them and they just provide the whole thing. But that's trickier you know, for people's eye lines too, right? When it's multiple. Absolutely. Cameras. Yeah. So absolutely. what, what's the difference in your opinion that you've worked on? You've worked on features, you've worked on series. Like what is the difference between film and television from your standpoint as a cinematographer? It's mainly the speed of how how fast you have to not just even shoot, but make decisions as well on TV. There's so much content that is given to artists today. Find that the scripts are getting bigger and longer, but we still have eight, nine, ten days to shoot these scripts, right? And here comes the not the additional two or three hours to the day, but the additional camera to the day, the third or the fourth camera, just to be able to shoot that content. To me, the main difference is not it's not even budget, it's time. It is time. In my case, I'm going to go back to the documentary part of my life early on because that also taught me to move really fast and to use what's there already and make that work. And maximize that. And even on the show that I'm doing right now, which is, like I said, a superhero genre where you're expecting a lot of colors and lights and stuff like that. I'm assigned to do the last season. And I, wanna, and I came to the project with a more realistic, naturalistic approach. Because I think that way, the viewer can identify more with the story. Even if this story is completely unnatural, even if this story is about Batman or The Flash or Superman, I think the viewer will identify more with it if we bring them like a more realistic canvas to, to the screens. Although there's moments, of course, that you kind of need to give them that, that extra palette that they're expecting. But it, just answering your question, how fast you have to move on TV. In, in my case, like I said, documentaries really taught me to move really fast. And there's times, and I remember talking about this, not long ago with somebody else, where even when I saw like this, if I'm blocking, I'm blocking the actors and the cameras are not there, but I'm looking at them and the way they're moving on set. If I'm late already, I'm going to go and shoot it. Of course, you know, you have to bring something else, of course. But if I have there already what I need to have to give the message to the viewer, I'm going to use that. I've done that many times. And of course, to experience where you can compromise in a good way, of course, where you can compromise to move faster and where you want to really spend the time that you have to. Next week, for instance, I'm doing a huge stand with just two characters and we want to plan this as a winner. It's just going to be one take that is going to be moving through lots of different spaces. And we, we know that we're going to spend four hours setting this up. But once we set it up, it's going to be or minutes to shoot it. Well, you have to spend your time by knowing that we st I still have to shoot a 50-page script in nine days. Yeah. Is there anything that you enjoy about that challenge? Oh, I love it. Nice. I love that challenge. And being yeah. able to, to choreograph and dance with the actors while all this chaos is happening and how this aesthetic under I'm planning to move from one actor to the other one and going through all these places in the foreground. And I, I just great. Yeah, you know, I, I guess the joy it, of pulling the joy of pulling it off seems it makes it supersedes the challenge itself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we all want challenges, right? Of course, if we wouldn't be planning stuff like this if we are told that we have two hours to shoot the scene, we're giving this scene seven or eight hours a day. That's what it's gonna be. Thirty-five seconds in the screen, no more than that. If I have a director without vision, and I say I'm the first one who's gonna print that to the table as well. If then the discussion is about, you know what, I'm just going to have the camera wait back here, high and wide shot, and then we just cover conventionally. It could be cool, but it's just standard. I think we all want to be challenged. 
or we do want to bring challenges to our work to make it more inter interesting. I think if somebody doesn't want challenges, they wouldn't not pursue this field <laughs> in general. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. E even in our job, and we love it, but there is challenges every day. And that's part of the job too. I was talking the other day to a colleague of mine and how much of our work happens actually before shooting. The shooting is the easy part sometimes. It's, it's the more rewarding, the most rewarding part, of course. The, um, the hiring crew, the management, working with the schedule and the AD, the preparation, not just for whatever you're working with the director, but also for yourself. We're always learning. I'm always researching. I'm always looking at things. I might just even be browsing um, one of my hundreds of photography books that I have at home. Not only just grabbing them, having a coffee and just getting inspiration by it. So, you know, that takes time. That is part of our job that not many people can see. And the filming side of things might be 20% of our job, but it's just the most rewarding, of course. That's what we're aiming for. Like, you know, anytime that we are approaching the, the end of my prep time, I'm always saying two days before, before we start filming, it's, it's, it's shooting time. Let's go and shoot, guys. Come on. Enough talking. Let's go and shoot it. Because that's what we are what we really want to do. But of course, you have to prep stuff. And on, on, on a show like the one that I did prior to this, Firefly Lane, you know, me being the only DP was really tough because I'm always filming and I can bring other DPs to the second units, but the next upcoming directors, I'm prepping with them on the weekends or sending lots of emails back and forth. I can't scout locations properly because I'm filming the current episode and I rely on my crew to give me notes. And it, it's tough, but the one thing that I like, though, is having the one voice, though. When you're working with two different cinematographers, even though I might be the main cinematographer and I give my notes, everybody has a little style. And being able to just have the one voice behind the camera through 26 episodes that I did of Firefly Lane, or more, I don't even remember. It just creates like a nice flow, a consistent flow to the whole show. There's no differences. There's, not, there's, there's no episodes that they're not intentionally different in style that's the part that i like but it's tiring it's tiring to oh, do yeah. 10 months of just being the only guy one thing i want to ask you and this is probably a strange question that you don't get is what sort of food do you eat when you're on set if i could do french hours the way i would i don't really care much about food to be honest i'm a vegetarian i'm very picky about what i eat anyway i was gonna i was gonna ask that because i'm sure since you have so much vast experience i'm sure like at a certain point point you like read your body, what kind of food that is keeping you energized and at your optimal performance versus something that you're like, ah, oh, I got to stay away. Even though I like that, I got to stay away from that. Because obviously on yeah. a film set, people could eat terribly if they want to. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Or, or two times. I'm, I love that. You know, I still have the passion for what I do. I think I have the best job in the world. I'm so passionate about it. I could just be shooting all the time. And what I do at lunch, for instance, after the six hours we break for lunch, I don't go to lunch. I actually have to go for a walk just to, to relax my mind, listen to music. I do a lot of meditation as well. Not because I really need to, but it makes me down. It can be very stressful, although I don't really get stressed very easily, but it can be very stressful sometimes, right? So sure. instead of just spending an hour eating, I have my little light meals and I just normally go for a walk. But, um, I like French style too. I sometimes I'll propose that to an AD. They're like, no, no, let's not do French style. But that's a lot of times. That's really that would be my go-to as well because I don't I like. Hours. You I don't, know, you, you I don't like stopping. You don't have to worry about that time that you have to break in the middle of the day, and especially in a place like where I am right now here, filming Vancouver in, in Canada, where at this time of the year it gets dark at three thirty p.m., three forty-five p.m. 
there might not be enough light and the sun will rise at 745. So you have such limited amount of daylight and then you end up doing night for day and stuff like that, which is fine, but it's always more challenging. Yeah. So what kind of DPs have inspired you when you were younger and coming up? Such a big list. But to me, the guys like Tony Hall, Oh, yeah. Gordon Willis. Yeah, yeah, you're a Woody Allen fan, and you have Manhattan poster behind you, so. Yeah, I yeah. do actually and, behind me. And that's right. you know, I love Woody Allen, cinematographers that Woody Allen has worked with. Yeah, and I love Gordon Willis. These guys are so bold. And even Connie Hall, I mean, in the last movie that he made, Road to Perdition, was incredible, that of was course. Incredible. But things don't want to be perfect. When I'm filming something, if things to me are perfectly lit, it bugs me. It's not real to me. It doesn't feel real to me. I don't go at home. I don't walk in my house with a backlight. It's, sometimes we cannot have to do that, of course. I call it poetic right. realism. We want to be realistic, but having a little flavor. It's like a film realism. I know you're talking about, but at the same yeah. time, it should be still motivated light. It seems like you're inspired by motivated light. Absolutely. But, but I like people like Robert Richardson as well. Lubezki, Dickens, the more current DPs right now. Bradford Young is incredible. But I always go to the uh, the other guys, like I said, the Chanel. Oh, it's yeah. another, He's fantastic. Another god of mine. Yeah. Uh, there's so many though, and so many references. Man, to me, it was a big reference for Firefly Lane for the seventies. A movie that he made, Virgin Suicides. It had a similar yellowish palette to it that I really loved, and that was a big reference too. But also, you know, photography to me is so important as well. So Lyra to me is, is my god. I have so many books about him. I just bought his latest, the latest one, the Unseen Soul Lighter that I haven't opened yet because I'm busy, but it's such a big reference to me. William Eggleston, Curtis, so many, so many. And we are living in times right now, not just with technology, because it's way easier for us to be known, to, to show our work. So many amazing current DPs right now working right now. Craig Fraser, the Batman last year. And doing that's oh, yeah, that they look fantastic. Work outstanding. Yeah, outstanding. You know, and then when you get a music composer together and that writing and that direct, it's just absolutely perfection. Yeah, absolutely perfection. Absolutely. And what's your what's your experience like working with different directors? Is it is that on a series? Is that sort of challenging? Do they have like different such different approaches or it could be challenging though it could be challenging on the case of Alpha Lane, all the directors coming in they knew the show very well they were fans of the show so that was pretty easy but I, and it I seemed coherent i gotta say on firefly lane it definitely seemed coherent it didn't seem mm-hmm. like there's some shows when you watch like each episode feels vastly different on firefly lane i felt like there was like a cohesiveness like yeah. throughout the show that's kind of part of my job as well, right? I'm talking to the producers and Sorana to make sure that I keep that consistency throughout. That's part of our job. But you know, I've been in other shows where the director wanted to do something completely different to our style. And not because that script wanted that difference, it's because of its different approach to doing things. And it's my job as well to parent this director and say, I love that, it's great, but we don't do this on the show. I don't like to say that either. I don't like to tell a director, we don't do that on the show. No, I, Let's I, talk about it. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, because, yeah, it's not that you want to be limiting for the sake of being limiting, but you mm-hmm. also want to adhere to the visual grammar that's already been established in the show. That almost like each company has a brand. Each show has a certain look and feel. Then, And if you go in a totally different direction, then it could, it, it could yeah. be haphazard, right? 
Absolutely. I always like to listen to that voice and it's, okay, I love this voice. Let's see how we can have this voice develop, develop this accent that we have on the show. And together we can come out with something. I did an episode on the show, my last episode where it was a little different, but the story was also told differently on the show. And the director wanted to do something a little different, but I also wanted to do something different as well. But in this case, the story wanted that too. So what's the word? A diversion from the normal style of the show. It was dictated by the script as well. Okay. And it's yeah. nice sometimes to get at something a little different. It's nice. I think that's so important. And I think story is something that it's, I like that you have such a respect for story because obviously you're, you're a top level cinematographer, but I feel like there's some DPs at a film school that it's like, they just want to, they just want, sometimes they just want to make a pretty looking shot for their reel, but they're not really being considerate to mm. how each of those shots are serving the story of the script. Yeah, I love that you're saying that because that's always my goal. I don't want my lighting, my cinematography to to be over the story, you know, and I can be looking at an image and wow, that's a really cool shot. That's beautiful lighting. What happened those five seconds that I was thinking that? What happens to the story? Yeah. And that, that goes with music as well. If we can all be with the same, the same level, just to help the story, that's everything. I love the story to me is everything. Respect to the actors on set is everything. I would be the first one to tell a director, listen. This is very emotional. Let's cross shoot for, and I'm going to be doing that next week as well. We have a scene, two people talking in a bar for six pages. You know, so I'm going to cross shoot this thing for the emotional side of things. And then I'm going to get a lot of different lenses, depending on the emotional part of the conversation as well. I'm going to be crossing the line. I'm going to be doing things like that. Yeah. I love what uh, Marcel did on Euphoria, that episode, that special episode they did between seasons one and two in COVID times. They did one episode that is 45 minutes of two characters in a bar. And the way that was shot, and they were so lucky because they saw that on film, it was great. But the way that was shot, it was gorgeous. I actually, I haven't seen it. But one thing I do got to say is, including with Firefly Lane, one thing that I like about doing this podcast is it's actually forcing me to watch things that I might not normally watch. Not that, like, Firefly Lane, like, honestly, like, I'm not, I don't think, like, the target audience for that show, but... Because I'm talking to you, I'm so glad that I watched it because I'm like, oh, this is really interesting and dynamic storytelling, like going back and forth in time. And even though it's a story about these two women, like the friendship is so genuine that you really do feel empathetic to their characters and are pulled into their world. Yeah. And it's you know, really, absolutely. Oh, I was just going to say, it's just an interesting journey of the friendship in a way that like, like most close friendships could have peaks and valleys at times where you get annoyed at your friend. And if you're really friends with somebody, then there's times where you have to be really real with that friend. And it's not just giving compliments all the time. Sometimes it's real talk. And that Absolutely. the series definitely explores it's, it's, that. It's the ups and downs, right? Not just a happy moment. Yeah. I think on the show, we saw that a lot, especially this season two. There's a lot of fighting back and forth. And in part two, that will come out, I think, in June this year, it's, it is really dramatic. It's sometimes, and this is just me talking, and I hope that this doesn't go the wrong way. It can be a little soapy, but that's also what the show wants, though. The, the soapiness of it sometimes is what the show wants, which is great. That was always intended. 
But a little bit of that that we're going to be show, seeing more in, in, in part two is what, to me, that makes this show really interesting, for me anyway. Nice. But yeah, relationships between friends, that's what the story is about, right? And we all relate to that, and it's the ups and the downs. So the superhero show, are you allowed to mention that at all? Is that released? Yet? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. After I wrap Fire from Land, I had a few offers. And DC Comics, this superhero genre, I did explore it a little bit before, but not like fully. It really, in our challenge, right? It's a season nine of our show. It's, it's The Flash. Oh, that shoots cool. in Vancouver, NBC. Yeah. yeah. And I normally wouldn't do something that has already a stylish look or so many seasons. I'm a believer of miniseries. I'm a believer of features. I'm a believer of telling a story from A to B and just let it be. Yeah. But to me, it was challenging. It was challenging, and I thought, why not? I've been filming so much up here in Vancouver. I'm calling this home right now, although I like to think of myself as I'm here in L.A. But it was challenging. And we're finishing the show. We're finishing the series. I wanted to bring a more cinematic approach to it. We're going two-to-one as per ratio, which is a little nicer. Um, there's another cinematographer on the show as well that has been on this show for five or six seasons. There's some differences between us, but that's fine. Not of in terms of the looks and the style, but that's a good thing as well. And it's just exciting. But I guess you, you're trying to ask whether I'm allowed to make things. Like, yeah, I just I was am. curious about, you, you'd mentioned a superhero show. I was just curious which show, what it is, people could yeah, choose. It is, sort it of is The Flash. And it's cool because the movie as well, the movie The Flash is also happening at the same time, which is great. And it's really cool because I was a little worried earlier on that, okay, there's this palette here. And can I bring something a little different? Can I elevate the show? But that was the conversations that we had earlier on. Once I was hired on the show with the showrunners, the writers, the producer, I want to bring something extra to the show. I want to not know my style because I don't think that I have a style. And I don't think that I should. It's the style of whatever you're working on. But do something a little different, a little greater for the final in last season. And so far, um, it's great. I've done now four episodes. I'm doing three more. I'm doing the last two, the big finale, which I'm very excited about. And back to what we were talking earlier, it's a different genre, but it's we are cinematographers. We once we know what we do, we can we can adjust. We're flexible. We can adjust our palette and our tools and our experience to whatever the project is. I love that I can be darker compared to Firefly Lane, which is a happier a series that has its own look. And I'm going the total opposite here. I'm always using negative fear. I'm pushing for darkness. <laughs> All the time. As a, every busy. DP does. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I show like Firefly Lane in the 80s, for instance, we touched upon this earlier. I cannot do that because I know this post-process and the aging involved and I have to let them a little differently. But that's fine too. We do things differently. Um, I, I've been doing such variety of genders lately. Two Hearts, Firefly Lane, Made, Story Raw, Realistic, Handheld. Then after that, I finished a show that is high musical and comedy. Then I did a Netflix horror feature film. Now I'm doing, then I did Firefly Lane, season two, and now I'm doing The Flash. And I love that. But being able to do, to tackle so many different genres, I think as a cinematographer, I am so blessed and lucky to be able to do that. Oh, you know, yeah, no, that is cool. It's awesome. Yeah, having such an eclectic body of work is definitely intriguing pushing for the worst and pushing for the worst and that i want to shoot on on, on film and anamorphic lenses but wait for that one yeah shifting gears a little bit and one thing that we do on this podcast is i like to ask guests what are what's two of your 
I guess we'll start with the first one, but I usually ask guests, what are two of their favorite movie scenes from any movies of all time? And you don't have to overthink it. It doesn't have to be like your absolute most favorite one ever. It's just, what's something that comes to mind that's, I just love that scene from that movie for any reason. Yeah. I wish you had talked about this before. I know. <laughs> no, it's, it's Normally I do, but I wanted to see, I, I wanted to see if it was spur of the moment. Yeah. You know? Awesome. <laughs> that is awesome though. I know it's a, okay. It, I'm, I, it's a tough question, but I don't want to make it. A t- I want to make it like, what's no, like let, something that comes to mind? You let, know? Okay, let's do that. Yeah. Something that comes to mind because there's so many. There's right? so many. So that's why I, I don't want to na- narrow it down. It's too hard of a question. What are yeah. your two absolute favor? It's just any two that you like or love or you think, you're like, that's just a good scene that I just enjoy watching. So what, one scene that comes to mind right now, and it, only because I was talking about this film so much last week, The Conformist. Oh, Vittorio Storaro. Storaro yeah. is the first movie that got me into... It's such a visually striking film. Yeah. But, you know, that one scene that happens in an office with with these two characters, and when they close the windows and they open the windows, that I know Storaro talks so much about that scene, that is reminiscent of the caves. I don't remember how the philosophical connection to it, but basically it was the reference to that scene was these prisoners that are in a cave, chained to the wall of the cave, and then this fire in front of them, and there's a wall in front of the fire. And what these prisoners are looking at, the only things that they can look at, is what is projected from outside the cave into the wall. So that was the reference to that scene. And I'm only mentioning this scene because, again, this is the first time that I emotionally reacted to something. I didn't know what I was reacting to. And I was very, this movie was made in 1970. And I don't know how old I was. When I think I was about 10 or 12 when I watched this film. But I just reacted to that scene so much. Did you watch it later on? Yeah. So you watched it when you were 10 or 12 years old at some point in the 1980s or whatever, like in the yeah. 90s? Or did you see it in a movie theater? Did you see it at home on VHS? I did not. I did watch it on TV. I watched it on, on TV at home, Dr. Spanish. Uh, and I wasn't great. But that got such a reaction to me that then I wanted to hear more stuff. And when you're such a, such a young age and you hear a cinematographer like Storaro, so passionate about his work. Such as he's a god, of he's course. masterful. Yeah. And talking about what I said earlier, in better words than what I said, how that cave referenced that scene, I thought it was so mind-boggling, so incredible. That scene is always embedded in my head. How you use light and shadows to emotionally create a reaction to the viewer is incredible. That's one. It's interesting, yeah, because <laughs> he started off the decade of the '70s doing that movie and ended it with Apocalypse Now, right? Yeah. If you think about amazing. it, that's, that is amazing. Because Apocalypse Now came out in, what, 79? It was in the late 70s? I think. Yeah, you, you put me in the spoiler now. As you, as you know these things, I think it might have been... Uh, it wasn't too far off 1970, though. Okay, and this is when you're going to be editing this podcast, right? <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> yeah, I probably will. Yeah, yeah Apocalypse Now is 1979. Now. I mean, Apocalypse Now. Yeah. So you're right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yes, about nine years. Yeah. Quite a decade for we, Vittorio We're talking Sorrow. about somebody. That I should have mentioned his name earlier. The amount of, the, the quality of wealth in The Last Emperor, Apocalypse Now. Yeah. The mm. Conformist. It's incredible. Absolutely. So what's another movie scene from any other movie? Another movie scene, I guess, another one that also, and I'm talking about me, like really young, reacting to, to, to images in cold blood. That, that, that scene with the actor by the window and how the rain is projected in his face as tears. That's another, that's another scene that I would recommend anyone from the movie In Cold Blood 
to watch. Amazing. Amazing. And again, I'm talking about scenes that created something within me when I was really young. And I have tried to replicate that as well in a couple of cases. And I think I was successful. It's just so powerful. So in 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 Cold Blood, the 1967 version, black and white, Uh directed by Richard Brooks. Obviously, based off the Truman Capote movie. Yeah, exactly. Book, book, rather. And of course, Connie Hall, Conrad yeah. Hall saw the film. It created me such a reaction as well. But yeah. again, this And you did, you did mention Road to, Road to Perdition. By, Road to Perdition. Yeah. That's such a great film. That was Connie's last movie. It was so good. And, um, and so strong and underrated, I think, in some ways. But like, people love it. But it's one of those movies that really holds up really well. And there's a lot of really interesting visual things that he did. Like I, the scene that sticks with me so much, this is a perfect example of visual storytelling, is when Daniel Craig's character is out of focus in the shot and they just leave him there at the table mm. and he f- feels really slighted by he's playing Paul Newman's son. And then he Newman goes off with Tom Hanks, and then yeah. he's just left there and just that feeling of just him being left out is just so visually strong. Yeah, and I remember that. That was amazing. That was amazing. The power of the images, that's incredible. Watching a lot of, when I have time off now, I'm watching a lot of Tarkovsky movies. I'm very influenced by the European directors and how incredible he is visually. Such a poet. I got to watch uh, more with, of his, I've his, seen some of his stuff, but I have to sit down and really watch more of his work. And how he uses like nature as well, with rain or wind, to 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 the visual imagery of his movies and to create a reaction in the viewer as well. And the pacing, the long takes. I love it. I love it. And it's something that I wanted to touch upon as well. How that European influence that I have embedded because I'm European and I grew up watching those movies and trying to bring that to the table when I'm here in North America, which has a slightly different approach to things, especially on TV that I've been working quite heavily the last year and a half here and sometimes it's the reception is quite well taken and people okay yeah let's do that maybe there's not so much cutting maybe you go to the close-up but you really want to go to that close-up so it's more meaningful when you do that as opposed to always just doing the wide the middles and then the coverage right, right, right. The same kind of language but this guy tarkovsky i should have mentioned that earlier you're know, talking about cinematographers earlier but as a director this guy really just pushed me creatively to try to do things visually that you don't even have to use words. And he would be the first one to say that. If I can just use an image and no words at all, he would do that. And to me, he was such a poet. That's so important. I'm glad you say that. Yeah, because that's something that I I had read. There's a book about filmmaking by Alexander McKendrick, who was a film director in Hollywood in the 1950s and 40s. And he made the original The Lady Killers and the sweet smell yeah. of success. But then he had taught film, apparently, at, at Cal Arts, a college of film. And he there's a book that's like a collection of his teachings there. And he said that. I guess that was like one of his lectures that he said, a film should be so visual that even if 80% of it, you should be able, if even if the film is in a foreign language, you should be able to understand 80% of what's going on. And I'm like, that's yeah. so interesting. It's such an interesting way to look at it and i think that's important i think that's more important nowadays than ever before because because there i always say for a movie at this point in time something has to justify why it's cinema 
right? Because there's YouTube. Right. Somebody could just sit there and watch it, well, like YouTube or whatever. Like, what's well, why is this thing a piece of cinema? And Absolutely. as filmmakers, that's our job is to do that, pull off that justification. I hundred percent agree. And I find myself a lot of times on set talking to like young PAs or people who want advice and stuff like that. And I'm always saying the exact same thing we are talking about right now. I said, watch Tarkovsky, watch Kurosawa. How Kurosawa uses composition and framing to tell the story. The why that shows. You know, we don't do that so much these days. Yeah. You know, and I don't want that to be lost. This I is agree. why I'm such a huge fan of these guys. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Vincent, really enjoyed this conversation. Where could people follow along with your stuff? Are you on social media? Or are you, do you have a website? Yeah, that yeah I'm, everywhere. I'm everywhere. I'm <laughs> everywhere. Um, <laughs> nice. Vincentdepola.com is my website. I'm on Instagram as well as Vincent Depola. Uh, I can be found there. And I'm very, I'm a very, which way shall I say? Nice guy that I can answer questions anytime. People want to talk about anything. I'm always going to answer. I'm always very well, I'm always welcoming those things. That's I, awesome. I, I like that. that. Thing, I like that. Know? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really enjoyed oh, thank this. Thank you, sir. It's been awesome. It's been really enjoyable. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Film Situation Podcast with your host, Seth Cota.